This episode is brought to you by Game of Thrones on HBO. Game of Thrones has critics raving the final season is the biggest show on TV, era-defining, and TV's greatest show of all time. Emmy-nominated for Outstanding Drama Series and all other categories. Visit hbo.com FYC for more on Game of Thrones. Oscar-winning filmmaker Adam McKay has shown us the underbelly of some of the most nefarious subjects to make headlines. From the finance whizzes who benefited off and spurred the early millennium's mortgage crisis to, well, Vice President Dick Cheney. McKay is Emmy-nominated this season for directing the pilot episode and executive producing HBO's amalgam of dynastic media families, the drama series Succession. McKay is with us today on Crew Call. My first question is, you read Murdoch, Jesse Armstrong's script that was on Blacklist? I did. He uh, came to us, oh my God, this was a long time ago. I'm going to say six years ago, was that? Maybe even seven? And he was coming off uh, in the loop. And, and I think he had just made Four Lions. No, you know what? That's what was coming out, Four Lions. And that's one of my all-time favorite comedies, Four Lions. I think it's like a masterpiece. So we were just like anything Jesse wants to do. And he asked us to read the Murdoch script. And I thought, well, this is crazy. Why isn't this being done? This is amazing. I mean, it seems to jive with everything we've read about the Murdochs. And then we learned about sort of libel laws over in London. They're different than they are here. Could you do a release of it in London, in, um, in England, rather? in parts of Europe, uh, if you can't do that release, is it really worth making it? Does it undercut your fight? You know, is anyone going to pay for it? So all of a sudden it became a big brouhaha and we're like, look, Jesse's an A-plus writer. Let's just do some other stuff. So he ended up writing a script for us about Lee Atwater. Uh, and that was it. We were kind of off and running with our relationship as producer, me as a director and him as a writer. And it just continued for years after that. Uh, that was a very long-winded answer to say, yes, I read Murdoch. <laughs> well, no, because, because of the fact – the reason why I bring this up is because I know in a lot of interviews with Succession – first of all, when you watch the show, for me, it rings very heavy Murdoch. <laughs> it, it just – between – like I know there's a little Sumner Redstone in there. Definitely there is, yeah. You know, The but, Maxwells are in there, a little but, bit of the royal family, like – the way the children are and what we know about the children and how one, I think like Elizabeth tried to be, do her own thing and, but yet came back into the family and it's very close to Shiv's character and just kind of like what we know about the brothers and the, the kind of posturing for me, every time I watch it, it rings very true Murdoch. And I know that in a lot of interviews, that Jesse does, he kind of like, you know, people are like, is this based on this incident? And he's like, oh, well, we base things on a lot of things. I mean, you know, you know he is being honest. I mean, I think the breakthrough of this show was, hey, wait a minute. We don't have to just do the Murdochs. And keep in mind, by that time, the script he had written, the Murdochs, had been confirmed. So everything that happened in his script, he legally could have then done because we all knew it turned out to be true. So there was no issues with that script anymore. Mm -hmm. And Jesse, I just think it was a genius idea. He's like, why limit ourselves to one portrait? Um, and I think the reason you're feeling this like connections to the Murdochs 
is really when you look at these dynastic families, these wealthy families, their stories all play very similar. I mean, you know, you look at the Robert Maxwell story and now his daughter, uh, how do you say her name, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, and what she's involved in. I mean, if you, with Epstein, like if you scripted that, you would never believe it. You look at the Redstone stuff, it's just off the charts. Then in the middle of us filming the pilot, who gets elected president? Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Who immediately appoints his fashion designer daughter to like some high cabinet position or advisor, I think, actually. And his son-in-law is basically running all of foreign policy and a lot of domestic policy for the country. His son-in-law, who's like a total cad, has no experience with anything. And that happens while we're shooting it. So the thing that really struck us was just like, man, this is a story we have seen before and before and before. And I think we were all hoping we wouldn't see it too much anymore. And sure enough, it's back with a vengeance. Not to say that you're wrong about the Murdochs. Absolutely. They are part of the recipe. I mean, there's a good two cups of flour in this recipe that are the Murdochs. But there's another cup of flour that are Maxwell's, you know, more the Redstones. There's the Trumps. There's the royal families. There's people we've known that maybe aren't famous rich, but are rich and dynastically wealthy. I mean, I knew a kid who was from a very wealthy family who was like 38 and still called his dad, daddy. And I remember telling Jesse that when he was writing the script, I go, there's nothing I love more than a fully grown adult referring to their parents as daddy and mommy. So, uh, so there's a lot of it in there. Um, and it was kind of a genius call in his part. It opened the whole world up. Suddenly there was a freedom to it that we didn't have before. Now, in the original Murdoch script, I, correct me if I'm wrong, it takes place on his birthday? God, now I'm trying to remember. I think, I think, it, I is, read I think it is a party, and certainly it's about succession. It's about who's going to take over that kind of – well, even less than that, it's more about like – who gets the baton of power on that day, which you quickly figure out is daddy's love. And some of this bled into succession. Yeah. Into the yeah. pilot, obviously. Well, I think yeah. what, what he took from that, which was really smart, was the fact that these families, a lot of their drama tends to happen around big events, weddings, birthdays, funerals, you know, annual fundraisers. And so when we walked in the door with this idea, and when Jesse came to us with it, that was the first thing he said. He said, these people tend to live around events. And uh, it turned out to be a great structure for the show. If you notice, I think pretty much every show has some event at the center. If there's a couple that haven't. Um, so, yeah, he learned a lot of lessons from that. It allowed him to take a deep dive uh, and man, oh man, the ways that he's kind of taken the leap from that and what he's done with the characters and how unique they've gotten to be and different. And it's just, uh, it's just incredible. Uh, some of the great characters I, I've ever gotten to be around. Now, when you started working on it, did you know what the final episode would be? Did you know everything was headed toward a wedding and that, and that uh, Kendall would be involved, would be involved in a murder? No. No, I was shooting the filming the pilot, you know, obviously as a producer working with Jesse on the season's arc and what was going to happen. So he did know a lot of stuff. He knew that, you know, X was going to happen, then Y was going to happen. And we, we knew that Kendall, you know, for anyone who hasn't seen the first season, a little bit of a spoiler, but not much of one. We knew that it looked like Kendall was going to be handed the reins. The dad pulls him out. Kendall's going to spiral. There's going to be like... 
you know, internecine battles for control. We knew all that was coming, but I purposely did not read that last script uh, until they were right before they were filming it is when I read it. And then I didn't look at any of the cuts until the first round of notes had been given. So it was like a total surprise for me. The great news was I, I think that end scene with Kendall and his dad is one of the great scenes in, in, in recent TV and streaming history. So um, I was nothing but happy with it and, and it just blew me away. Now, before I talk about um, your process on set, let's talk about the casting because I read that um, you, you worked with Jeremy on the big short. Yep. And then he, you had him over here for dinner. And then he was saying something. I remember I read someplace that he said, and then I had a fight for the part. But tell me about what what was it about Jeremy that made you say, you know what, he can do this. He could play someone this complex. We see him. We see him as a straight guy in the big short. Then I I remember him very uh, very fondly from Molly's Game. Oh, yeah. he's, he's a really nefarious dude, but so he mine. really brings. Yeah, he's 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 Quicksilver and all that other oh, you stuff. You know what he's great in too is um, oh, what's it called? The one where he's Lee Harvey Oswald. He's amazing. He's unrecognizable. What's that movie called? Uh, I can't remember the name. But anyway, the, the um, but what's amazing is he really brings a lot of heart to this because you you feel for, you know even though he's a hot shot and you know you don't want to be across from him in a boardroom. Man, you feel for him. The pain that is there. Well, here's the thing. Occasionally you get very lucky and you stumble upon these actors and you're like, oh, this guy's one of the great actors working today. It just so happens he's not as famous as Christian Bale or Daniel Day-Lewis or Meryl Streep. But he's every bit as good as those upper echelon actors. It's just sometimes they don't get super famous. They don't get that role early so when that happens, and Francine Maisler, our casting director, was the one who introduced me to him, so credit to her, she knows it too. She'll say it. We'll be in the room and we'll be like, oh, we got a special one. Sarah Snook felt like that too, uh, playing Shiv, the daughter. We just felt like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like one of the great actors out there walking around. And we always say it's like, you know, there's like... 200 of those types of actors out there in the world. Some of them just do theaters. You never get to see them in film and TV. Some maybe like never left, you know, there's some that are in Chicago and only work in Chicago. Like you just never know where they're going to be. And Jeremy was that guy. And I told uh, Jesse that immediately. I said, you have to have Jeremy play this role. He'll be incredible. And Jesse's so smart. He's like, you know, I just wonder, I've seen him do this. I was like, no, 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 no. You, you just see him do it. And he came in and he did the reading and Jesse was like, yeah, it's pretty good. I go, what do you want? What do you want different? Cause I know how good he is. And so I stepped outside with Jeremy. I go, Hey, try this, try this. And he just stepped back in and just did it perfectly. And Jesse's like, well, my, oh my. <laughs> and that was it. The role was his, you know? And then it, Sarah, Sarah is a wonderful. I mean, I mean, I think a lot of people have seen her for the first time on this. Yeah. Um, Tell about how, how, did you, how did you find her? So this one, uh, all credit to Francine Maisler. I, I walked in the door with two names in mind. I walked in the door thinking Brian Cox for Logan Roy. First thought I had, I read the script, it has to be Brian Cox. I told Francine, she's like, you're absolutely right. Let's see if he's available. And then the other one was Jeremy Strong. We have to do Jeremy Strong's kind And once again, Francine, you're right. The rest were gifts from Francine, where we worked with her. We sat in the room with her. But she knew Sarah. I guess she was like 
the second choice was it for like Fincher's girl with the dragon dragon tattoo it was like almost her in that role. Oh, wow. Wow. And that's the kind of thing someone like Francine tracks. And and you know Francine's taste is just impeccable. So she kept saying, I'm telling you, this girl is special. Because we read some other really good people. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talented actors out there. And then finally we got Sarah to read. We're like, holy moly. Yeah, we see what you see. And it was, it was maybe the most enjoyable casting experience I, I think I've ever had. Because everything just landed perfectly. Like when Kieran uh, read for his role for Roman, all he did was like self-tape in New York. Sent the tape. I was with Jesse and Francine and our producer, Kevin Messick in the room. And we looked at the self tape and we just go, it's him. And like, how often do you do that from a self tape? Usually what you say is, all right, fly him in. Let's have him do it again. And it was so crystal clear that it was him. And it was, it was a really fun casting experience in that sense that you just, and it's a testament to Jesse's writing that the characters were so well drawn. You just knew who the right actor was and Alan Ruck, I remember, came over here to my house, and we just sat down, and within 10 minutes, I was like, oh, yeah, it's him. Uh, yeah, we had a blast. I mean, Francine and I still talk about, man, that was a good one. That was just a joy. Um, now, I'm going to go on a little tangent and then come back to succession. Sure. Who are your mentors for directing? Like, coming up, uh, like, at some point in this interview, I want to talk about Pinata Full of Bees. <laughs> and, but was it, does it, does it go back to Del Close? Um, does it, does it go back to, to anyone at second city? Um, like, or, so, or is it, was it, was it someone on SNL? I mean, there's two, two levels to that answer, right? Probably for all of us, for whatever we do. The first level is like, what got me to love film? What got me to view film as this magical, incredible thing that I would do anything to do? Kind of film TV, you could kind of say. So in that sense, I would go back to like, you know, the man who would be king. I remember seeing that movie when I was, whatever, eight years old and being like, holy, holy crap. And all of a sudden, film just felt infinite. It felt like it had no bounds. And that would continue. That would continue with movies like Breaking Away. I remember seeing that when I was like in fifth grade and like being a fifth grader and like tearing up in a movie theater. Like who, who does that? And that includes Star Wars. It includes some of the obvious ones. And Airplane was another one like, oh, my God, where did this come from? So you have that kind of phase, which what are the movies that like really like turned your head? And that continues obviously all the way through college. You keep discovering new directors like Cassavetti's giant influence, love Cassavetti's, Barry Levinson's Baltimore trilogy or quartet, whatever you want to call it, really influential, all these kinds of movies. But then I think you're correct. I think the guy who really helped me and made it practical was Del Close. Because Del, Del Close started talking about the idea that you could do comedy that you could do commercial entertainment, but it could be striving for something else, that you could do both. And up until then, I hadn't heard that. I'd been doing stand-up comedy. I'd been writing sketch, uh, doing occasional little acting roles. And it was always like, hey, you're trying to get a gig. You're trying to get some money. You're trying to make the people like you. And Dell was the first one who said, no, no, you got to like lead the audience a little bit. They want to be led a little bit. And when you do that and you miss hey, you'll end up with comedy. But if you're just going for comedy and you miss, you're going to end up with crap. And that was always his thing over and over again. Play off the top of your intelligence, uh, lead the audience, treat them like poets and geniuses, the audience, and that's how they're going to respond. 
And I was lucky enough that I just got to work with these incredibly talented people like Rachel Dratch and Ian Roberts and Neil Flynn and on and on. Scott Adsit, Jenna Jolowitz, he's a man, Tina Fey came in, Amy Poehler. And we got to like every night of the week performing, doing improv, doing set, whatever it was, put all of his lessons to the test and they worked. I mean, that's what was crazy about it. You're like, this works. So he was definitely the biggest influence on me. No question about it. And there were certain, I, I remember uh, being in the, the second city satellite out here. Sure. And someone quoted him. One of the teachers quoted him and said, if, if a gu- if a gun is shown on stage early in the early in the early in the play, it better go off by the end. <laughs> so it's funny because I just saw a movie where the gun didn't go off. Oh, that's hilarious! <laughs> Recently, I saw a movie where the gun didn't go off. But that said, were there axioms like that? Was there tons of them? Tons yeah. of them. I mean, his biggest lesson was wait for the third choice. Because, you know, improv is a frightening thing, long-form improv, especially, you know, when you're doing scenic improv. There's no game. You're not doing freeze tag. You're not making up a song. You're just out there on a stage with another person looking him in the eye, and you've got nothing. So we tend to respond like a frightened deer. We tend to go, like, with the very first bolt of energy or thought that hits us. And his whole thing was stay. Don't move. Don't listen to that first thought. Wait for it to go away. Then when the second thought comes, that's like the mediocre thought. That's probably what you're going to see in like a TV commercial joke or your friend at the bar is going to make that joke. Let that joke go away and wait for that third thought. And he really would make you stand on stage and he would go, really? Is that your, is that your third thought? And I go, no, probably not. And he goes, and then, then you know, F it. Can I curse? You can, yeah. of course. Uh, then, it's then, a great impersonation. Uh, it brings me straight back to the Untouchables. Yeah. Uh, listen, Adam, if you're going to stand up there and be a moron, then you're wasting all of our time. Fucking wait for the third thought. And you'd be like, all right, all right. And then you'd sit there, and then you'd say the third thought, and he would go, there we go. And you got faster at it. You got better at it. Uh, you know, once again, I was lucky to be working with incredibly talented people, so they were all getting better at it. We were all making each other better. Uh, but that third thought was a big one, man. That was because a lot of the other improv going on, and you know what's funny is I'm calling it improvisation, but it's really just rules for creativity. I mean, it could be music. It could be writing. It could be anything. These rules kind of apply to just life in general. And because people tend to treat Dell like, oh, it's it's improvisation. It's like, you know, the guy was a brilliant actor. The guy was a stand up comic. The guy was in Hollywood. I mean, like he did a lot of stuff. And yeah, I I think that was kind of the center because a lot of the other improv around town was just like, hey, let's make everyone feel good. Your first thought is great. We're all great, which, by the way, that's nice. It's good to get rid of judgment and people get in their heads. But what you ended up with was a lot of first thought improv and Dell was just like, no, get out of my classroom. He would throw people out of his classroom. By the way, like, you know, you tend to extol these people. Not that nice a guy. Like, I mean, he could be pretty mean. You know, I, I don't think he knew my name for like three years. Like, he didn't give a shit. Like, where's the, the big lumpy guy with the glasses? Like, and then he would grow like a beard, his giant beard, and he had these wild eyes, and we would call him anti-Santa. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Game of Thrones on HBO. Game of Thrones has critics raving the final season is the biggest show on TV. 
era-defining, and TV's greatest show of all time, Emmy-nominated for Outstanding Drama Series and all other categories. Visit hbo.com FYC for more on Game of Thrones. So bringing this all back into succession, I know that like some of the at- you incorporate, of course you incorporate improv. And I, again, I read that, that Jeremy said something where when it came to his breakdown scene in the bathroom, the, the fact that you allowed him to play dangerous uh, he he owes a lot to you, and then and then Kieran Culkin is like, oh my god, I was so scared, and and that's so funny because he's such a flippant, oh. wild type of actor. You would think, you would think, what you're 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 not, you know, you would think improv's his best friend, but he, you know, he said in various interviews, I was I was really, uh, you know, uh, concerned about this at first, but he went with it. He came up to me in the beginning, yeah, and was like, uh, hey, I don't improvise. And I've learned now from doing this for a long time, the best people always say that. I had Mary Steenburgen on Step Brothers and Richard Jenkins were like, hey, we don't do this improv thing. And I was like, well, you're about to. And sure enough, they were great. Mary Steenburgen was incredible. Jenkins was amazing. It's like usually whenever someone tells me that, I know they're going to be good. It's when the people think they're good to begin with, I get a little worried. Uh, So Kieran turned out to be one of the best. Yeah. So looking back at the episode that you directed, what were some of the best moments that you got out of improv? Well, what I loved was, and, and one of my favorite types of things to watch, and this is why I love like the early Altman films, and like Nashville is one of my all-time favorite films, I think for all of us, right? We all acknowledge that's an all-time classic. I love the layers of dialogue. I love the sense of density in the room. So I think some of the best stuff we did was like the beginning of the dad's birthday party when everyone's hanging out in the living room. And I just would roll longer and I would tell them, I would just give them one sentence. I go, why don't you guys just be talking about this and you can be talking about this. And, and I had a great DP and we would just, you know, we'd film the written lines and I wouldn't yell cut and I would just let it go for another 30 seconds. And then Kieran would be, I really hate that. And I go, that's funny. Cause it was really good. And then I started like taking it from just letting the role go longer into when they would do their scenes. I wouldn't say cut. I go, I just, I go, come on, just say this to him. What would you say? Like, and really that was the big first scene where they all started to get it. And then by the time we got to the dinner table, that entire chatter at the dinner is I just set up Dolly around the table and we just rolled and rolled out on mags. We had a couple cameras going and I told everyone, here's a subject to talk about. And that's all you're watching. I just gave them one little subject and everything is improvised, that whole chatter before they say, let's go to the game, and, like, you can tell it's scripted, but there's, I mean, we got a good 15 minutes out of it. The original cut of the show, that was, like, a four-minute scene. I, I, I had to, because it was so good. There was so many funny nuggets between them, and uh, so then it just kind of went from there. Then when we went to the softball game, you know, there's transitions. Hey, you guys got to be getting your bats and your gloves and be talking. And by then now, everyone's just taken off with it. Everyone's comfortable and loving it. Was that based on a real anything real? Like in the Murdoch's lives or anything? No, like, I, I asked they you. they go out and play a, you know, they go bowling or they have an annual, I don't know. I asked Jesse the exact same thing, and he just said no. He just said, I just feel like all these families have these little rituals they do. So maybe it's not a softball game, but maybe it's. Every July, we take the boat off Italy or, you know, we we play bocce ball for a dollar or, you know, these weird little uh, routines. 
I, once again, testament to Jesse's fantastic writing. It felt so authentic. I asked the exact same question you just asked. So the line, the watch tells you exactly how rich you are. Tom's line. Was that, was that improvised? So that was scripted, but everything around it was improvised. So then Logan, Brian Cox goes, uh, oh, that's very funny. Did you think of that beforehand? And then um, uh, McFadden goes, uh, no, uh, yes, no. And that whole, that exchange is all improvised around it. So how was Brian with improv? Is it? Loved it. Loved it. Yeah. Just, yeah, yeah, just no problem. I mean, these are, these are a serious act. I mean, these guys have done a lot of stuff. And, uh, I mean, especially Brian. And I think the big trick is once you set up that environment on the set that, like, the only way improv works is that it's going to suck sometimes. It has to. And I just say that. I just go, it's, you're not looking, you're not trying to be, you know, a perfect, clever line every second. You know, we're not Truman Capote here. It's, it's just behave. And, and occasionally something's going to work, and occasionally it's not. And people can really smell when that's BS or not. You know, people can tell when, like, sometimes the director says that, but you really can kind of tell they want it to be perfect. And I really don't. I really do want it to be behavioral and, and it's a testament to Jesse as a writer too. I mean, he's behind, you know, with me the whole time I'm doing this, he was loving it. He was like, absolutely. Cause you know, if you did that to David Mamet, Mamet, he would throttle you. Or if you did it to uh, Aaron Sorkin, who I'm friends with, but he would be, he would be like, you know, get the hell out of here. So a testament to Jesse that he really appreciated it and saw what it could be. What was your most challenging sequence to shoot? And I mean that in a good way. Oh, I got not, you. Not in a, not in a, you know. I mean, I think, I think one of the one of the best scenes I've ever had the, you know, good fortune of being able to film is the father, uh, the son and father, Kendall and Logan in that dining room. That's that's what I was going to say. Yeah, the, I think it's one of the best things I've ever gotten to be involved in. And and I remember after we shot it. I was like, that was, that was good. I mean, that was, that was just where everyone was on. Everyone was bringing everything they could bring. You just had Jeremy Strong doing some of the great acting. You had Brian Cox doing like, it can't get any better. My DP like lit the hell out of the room. Like he filmed it perfectly. Set design, production design, Kevin Thompson. Like you just felt like everything was right where it should be. And when the scene was over, there was that little pause of silence from the crew and then some applause like you could just tell and then i would connect that to the scene with jeremy in the in the bathroom ripping apart the bathroom was another one where wow we just got to watch something we just put two cameras in the bathtub and i said jeremy i'm just gonna go till we roll out here's how much time you have you got to get as far as cleaning it up and that's it and we gave him like five ten minutes to go emotionally prep and he got in there and it was one take and i think that was the last scene of the entire pilot shooting i was gonna say he really damaged that hair dryer i was curious if there were more hair dryers he marked the cabinet it was so that was all one take here's how good these guys are those cabinets he marked were fake they were put in and he was told he could mark them we had four hair dryers like we were ready to do four takes on that. Anything he broke, he was allowed to break because that was actually a beautiful house we were in. And uh, it was just one take. And I was at the end. I did the thing where you're like, am I crazy or is that it? We got two cameras on it. He gave us every bit of what, and then there was like a long pause and I was like, that's a wrap. And that was the end of the pilot. Yeah. So I would say that that scene with, um, with uh, uh, Logan and Kendall in that dining room, holy moly. 
And then I would say the the bathroom scene that followed it are two of the like great scenes I've I've ever been lucky enough to be within a mile of. So I have about three more questions. Yeah, yeah, whatever you need. Okay, so um, the color scheme real quick. Talk about that because it's got this royal British look to it. It looks very, you know, it looks, and, and I mean this with a great compliment, like, um, you know, like, like Howard's End. Yeah. It has that richness to it. But then there's the steelness of New York. It's a very New York, it's a very modern New York show mixed in with this, you know, it's got this great British color to it. Can you talk about that? No, I mean, I like your description. That That is kind of what we were going for. I wanted to use film because these are tough characters, you know, at first blush, the, you know, people always talk about who's likable and who's not. I personally don't care about that, but a lot of people do. So I wanted the warmth of the film. God bless HBO. They said, go ahead, use film, which a lot of credit to them. Not digital. Not digital, film, because it's just... 35. 35, and it's subconscious. You know, it's that analog, the little blips and stuff. You're not aware you're seeing it. There's a warmth to it. There's Just Just a, this episode? No, no. Every we shoot film, Beautiful. the whole thing. Beautiful. So that was first and foremost. Then the movie that I kind of, in the last 10, 15 years, I think is like one of the masterpieces is Foxcatcher. I really think it like hit where America's at right now in a way that almost was two on point that like a lot of Americans are like, I'd rather Haunting not watch right now with Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> I mean, that movie is so brilliant. And so I, I just think it's everything. So my DP and I watched that film, Andres Parekh and I watched that. And we definitely took some of that, how it had a cold solemnity yet a kind of dire foreboding in the distance. You know who does that really well is David Fincher always does that. David Fincher, whatever he shoots, it feels like someone was murdered in the ne room next door. And I wanted a little bit of that. I wanted the royal kind of warmth, but I also wanted it to have a, a, a dire kind of foreboding shadow in the background. So Foxcatcher was really instructive on that. And... Yeah, we kind of combined all those ideas. It was the royal family. It was New York. It was modern. It was a little bit rotten, uh, like Foxcatcher. Uh, you know, the, the eye of the idol has, has turned and gone rotten to reference the man who would be king. And so uh, I, was, I was really happy with the look of it. Initially in the pilot, we, we moved, and I wanted it to be mostly proscenium classical, but then sometimes handheld. And... Because we were we were using handheld, we had some snap zooms, and I left a couple in in the pilot. Down to my one slight regret, I don't like the way snap zooms look on television. They don't look as good as in film. So when I saw it on the TV, I was like, oh, wait, they look different than the screen I was watching on. But still, I think they, they're nice. They give energy, and they're organic to what you're doing. But we kind of pulled back on that as we went on with this series. But the mixture of the handheld with the traditional proscenium, I think, has worked really, really well. And great directors like Mark, Mark Mylod and stuff have just continued to kind of bring that look out even more. So, yeah, overall, I, I couldn't be happier with what we discovered in the pilot. I, I really felt like it was it was successful as, as pulling out a, a unique dark tone that was also funny. Um, yeah. Now you're going to shoot Showtime, uh, I think tomorrow. <laughs> uh, and I'm wondering what you could tell us about it. Like, man, you think of someone like Pat Riley being, I mean, it's, I, I, for me, I think it's a long time coming to see something, to see him dramatize, you know, dramatized on, on, in any form. You, you know, outside of the real game, yeah. outside of the real game. Is it, is it from his point of view? Is it from various points of view? 
Well, it's based on an incredible book by Jeff Perlman called Showtime, which it's amazing because I have friends who aren't even basketball fans who have read it and just been like, oh my God, I couldn't put that book down. It's an incredible book. So we knew we loved the book, but we're like, how do you adapt this into a show? And then Max Borenstein came along and just dropped this script in front of us, which we're like, holy moly, this is a great script. Sort of like I, Tanya slash Big Short, uh, kind of in that kind of, you know, 24-hour party people kind of zone. And it's it's told from a lot of different perspectives. It's really kind of the story of, you know, that Lakers team changed basketball and changed American culture. And the disparate elements that came together to make that happen are, are really kind of crazy. And the real story of who these people are and what they went through and how it happened, it's it's incredibly fun. It's sometimes dark. It's uh, interesting. It's, you know, it can be funny. It can be dramatic. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on with this story. It changed American culture. Basketball became the dominant sport, which was connected to hip hop. I mean, African-American culture is the culture now in America. It changed the NBA. It used to be the fourth or fifth sport. Now it's clearly number two and sometimes nips on the heels of American rules football. So, it's it's big, it's epic, and uh, and we're uh, yeah we're we're playing around with it. It's got a, it's going to have a unique visual style to it. We're definitely playing around with different mediums. Uh, very influenced by the movie No, which I don't know if you've ever seen that about Pinochet, the dictator. I was going to say the Chilean. Yeah, Chilean. yeah, I love the way that movie looks. We're kind of using that as a reference. Uh, yeah, it's going to be fun. We're we're we start shooting in about five weeks. And the cast. Or are, you, are you allowed to say anything? I don't or not know yet? what I'm allowed to say. I mean, I know we have some unknowns. I know we found an incredible young actor to play Magic Johnson that it's like the heavens opened up and gave him to us because he looks just like him. He sounds like him. He can play basketball and he's a trained, talented actor. So, um, but I don't know if I'm leaking Got anything it. Got by it. saying that. Totally. But I can't, I'll tell you that. And, okay. uh, and Pat Riley. Pat Riley, we haven't cast yet. We have some ideas. He's not in the first episode. He'll emerge as a major character. Uh, so it's a mixture of like really just talented actors that you love with unknowns, obviously, since you have the basketball element. Um, but yeah, we've it's Francine Maisler again. Like, you know, as soon as you get her in, you know it's gonna be good. Uh so uh two more questions. So I write a lot about box office. Um what's what's a What's up with comedies nowadays? <laughs> I mean, I want to say, I mean, there was Girls Trip that did well, and then, but prior to that, it was yeah, like you're, it, you're, it's like Bad Bombs and Sausage Party, and I talked to a lot of people. I, I I pinned down a lot of studio executives and agents and stuff, and you know, here's some of the excuses I've heard, and I'm curious about what you have to say. Um, I've heard uh, that. And again, while the easy excuse might be, well, Netflix just soaked up everything, it's kind of like, that's well, not it. That's no. not it. No. Um, one of them was that, um, that, the, um, that there is a generational shift in comedic talent and in that those that were big and that we're in the middle of that right now. That's one of the reasons I was given. And then the other one was basically um, – I don't know, like like Universal will try one one a year or a couple a year, and they try to eventize it as much as they can. I don't know, but what's your take on what? Why are we going through this? It's so unusual. Sometimes I think personally, 
I love I love your work. Hangover and what they did with the twist at the end and everything. Yeah. I don't know if that set a bar so high that no one could excel and everyone I don't know what's what's Well, it was a great run, you know. It was a run to me that started with Austin Powers, the first one. And went all the way through what? Yeah, probably the hangover, right? Yeah. And it was so how long was that? It was like twelve years, fourteen years. Yeah. And I, I always point to a lot of the reason for the explosion in kind of these great comedies to the avid. I think when you have the avid, you're able to time these movies in a way that you never could before. And these movies started getting really like pulverizingly funny. Like I mean, I remember watching Borat in a theater and like my muscles amazing. were sore on my side. I remember watching Austin Powers and like laughing like a goon, 40 year old virgin. Like, I mean, these movies were funny, funny, funny movies, the hangover. Like, so I think you have that first off the avid juices, these comedies in a way that's like, Oh my God. But the biggest thing is like, Oh my God, look at the world, man. I mean, comedies like are based on like breaking the rules of consensus reality. Right. Well, what the hell is consensus reality right now? I mean, you know, literally, and it's crazy every time I say it, Donald Trump is our president. He's a white nationalist. I, I, whether you support Donald Trump or not, he's clearly a white nationalist. Like, you know, I have family members who voted for him. I, I think if you really cornered him, they'd go, yeah, he's racist. Like, we know that. So you have this cartoon character as, pres- as president, Meanwhile, it's 108 degrees in Paris today. Like, you have the livable atmosphere is dying as we're sitting right here. Yeah. You have Boris Johnson just became the prime minister. You have this strange mixture of, like, people coming to grips with decades and centuries of misogyny and racism and uh, bias against people's sexual preferences. We're kind of coming to grips with it while at the same time half the country's worse on those fronts like the world is so fractured and strange and extreme and cartoonish and terrifying i honestly think it's all about like comedy trying to recalibrate like i mean you couldn't you couldn't make 40 year old virgin now who cares like and stiller's told me that like he uh, i've asked stiller this question when he was at Cannes a couple of years ago he was saying he couldn't make tropic thunder now well, I'm that's like, a different I'm thing. Like, that's because of the um, blackface joke. Yeah. He would have been destroyed. There's no question. Yeah. Um, there would be no tolerance for that whatsoever. I mean, that, that was an edgy joke when it came out. But I just mean as far as like what keeps the stakes high for us to sit in a movie theater. I mean, we're, we're lucky in a sense because a lot of the comedies I did with Will were about these issues. Like, you know, Anchorman is entirely about sexism. It's entirely about like the news selling out for entertainment. So... You know, Step Brothers is about these kind of men, children that our country started creating through consumerism. So we're lucky in the sense that some of our comedies actually do hold a little bit, but still we wouldn't make those comedies now in the face of what we're staring at. So I just think there's a, a recalibration happening. And, and I think you're seeing like, what are the things that are really funny? To me, the guy who's, who's kind of hit it recently with John Mulaney's bit about how Trump is like a horse in a Yes, hospital. love that. That's the best thing I've heard. That is the best thing I've Brilliant. heard. And I would say I would say that video for This Is America, the Childish Gambino, like 
that's dark, dark, dark comedy, but like that hit it. Like there are certain things that are kind of grazing it. What, who's the woman who had the stand-up special on uh, Netflix? Uh, oh, uh, Nanette, uh, Hannah, Hannah Gatsby, I would say, is someone who like, so there are certain people that are scratching it that are like, oh, this feels like it's now because that's what comedy has to be. It has to be now and it has to play around with the expectations of now. And I just think the big problem is what the hell is now? Because we produced that movie, The House. That's not a masterpiece, but I thought it was like a solid, funny comedy. It was Amy Poehler. It was Will Ferrell. There was a bunch of moments in it that I laughed. I thought the director, I thought it looked really good. I mean, my God, that movie tanked. I couldn't believe it. I was like, I in no way claim it's an all-time great comedy, but I was surprised. Like, it really tanked. And then it was, it was then that I was like, oh, yeah, we've shifted. Like, those types of comedies just don't fly anymore. So comedy is like a natural physical condition. It's going to come back. It's just, man, we're in a weird place right now. And I, 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 I'm always wrestling with, okay, did Netflix did, – and, 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 and I'm not trying to say nasty things here about Netflix, but they've obviously – they brought it in-house, and they're, they're capitalizing on it. Oh, I don't think, because the joy of watching... I remember seeing Wedding Crashers in a packed theater at the, um, the Arclight in the Cinerama Dome, and I remember that crowd just rocking with laughter. To me, it's like a horror movie. When a comedy is really good, and you watch it with a giant crowd, there's nothing more enjoyable. So, no, I, I, I think it's good. Netflix gives other ways to make things, and make movies, and do shows, and... Um, so I, I, I don't in any way blame that. And, and if, if Stiller's hint was that the blackface joke and we're too PC, I, that's not the yeah, problem. He didn't either. bring that up, but it oh, was just oh, kind of okay. like, he didn't bring that up in the conversation, but he was, it was essentially what I used to do. I, I couldn't do now. And this is like two years. This is when they had the Noah Baumbach film at uh camp. Well, in that case, he's not wrong. Cause I mean, certainly meet the parents is another great comedy from that, that, uh, that era. Yeah. And I just think if you put that out, people be like, are you kidding me? We got kids in cages. Yeah. We got, like, it's, you know, we just had a 400-foot wall of fire sweep through Northern California. Like, our president said, you know, Nazis are very fine people. Like, why am I watching the guy's, you know, future father-in-law is giving him a hard time? Who cares? Like, and I just think that's what's screwed with everything. But it, it is going to break out, and it's going to be really interesting. I thought that Mulaney horse in the hospital bit was... He's brilliant. First flicker of light I've seen, like, oh, there is a way to do this, you know? Yeah. Excellent. Thanks so much. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me.